real, real conversation, conversation and some hard truths. Hard truths. Gangs, Gangs, drugs, drugs and, guns. and guns. Giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Welcome back, everybody. Nathan Romas with you. Today, we're going to be talking about national security, intelligence, and just what is going on in the world today. For that, I have Scott McGregor on the program. Scott is former Canadian military intelligence. He was an advisor to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police on transnational organized crime and hybrid warfare threats. Scott has worked with Five Eyes Intelligence Agencies on matters of national security. He was advisor to the province of British Columbia's Attorney General on transnational organized crime threats, which led to the public inquiry known as the Cullen Commission. He's also advisor for CSHAT, Grey Zone Conflict, Hybrid Warfare, and International Negotiations. Maintains an extensive intelligence network. Currently, Scott is principal of Close Hold Intelligence Incorporated and co author of the soon to be released book, Mosaic Effect How the Chinese Communist Party Started a Hybrid War in America's Backyard. I think I got all that in there. Uh, welcome, Scott. Hey, thank you for having me. You're a busy guy with lots going on here. I'm looking forward to the book, especially. Yeah, the book, you know, the book's been. Um bit of a challenge. It, it was put together about two years ago. So a lot of information that was in the book is, has kind of come to light um, in media. Um, so the public's much more aware of some of the things that are in there. Uh, of course, it goes into a lot more detail and explains uh, things, uh, a template for what China's doing in regards to hybrid warfare in Canada um, mm-hmm. and really uh, worldwide. Cool. Well, before we get into all the current events, uh, we'll Talk a bit about you because um, you've got quite the career and uh, you've been involved in all this craziness uh, for a long time. So maybe you can start at the beginning and tell us uh, about yourself. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, looking back, uh, kind of the the beginning of my career starts in the military. Um, I was in electronics, managed to work within the Navy, the Army, and the Air Force as a Ray Force member. So there's not many people that have. I've experienced all of the elements, uh, and in about you know 2000 and 2002, 2003, I uh, went for selection to uh, pass a board to get accepted into the intelligence trade. <clears throat> Did that and uh, went into a lot of training, which lasts a lot longer than what uh, what we see in some of these um, kind of quick courses. They're about two week courses that they offer, um, usually within law enforcement. So these are much longer. These are six month courses at a time. Uh, they're very in-depth. They look at global issues, a lot of hands-on. Um, so <clears throat> that that was kind of the beginning of my journey. Uh, I worked within the Air Force. Uh, I've, I've, I've done maritime patrol activity, seeing what's, what's coming to the coast. Uh, I spent most of my time on the west coast of Canada. Um, spent 10 years in uh, Canadian Forces Base Esquimalt in a in a room within a room within a room, I had six doors to get out to go to the bathroom. So uh, <laughs> spent a lot of time in the dark. Got a little institutionalized in there, actually. Um, but yeah, while I was there, you know, I got to understand and learn how intelligence works uh, within the Five Eyes, but also within NATO and you know, the profession of intelligence, and really get a strong understanding of the reference documentation that's required to run an intelligence unit. So that's kind of my forte is. I'm building intelligence units. I do that later on in the story that I'm going to tell you here. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of work my way through there. There's there's not a lot of intelligence uh, operators in Canada. Uh, it's it's quite limited. Um, so on the west coast, we had three, and uh, eventually my one of my roles was senior domestic intelligence analyst for the west coast of North America. Um, so we looked at a lot of the domestic issues um, as it pertained to terrorism and, and that kind of thing. Um, did some work with the 2010 games, uh, put together a, what's called an operational, uh, sorry, intelligence preparation of the operational environment, which is fancy way of saying it's, it's the, uh, the workup, the, the planning that goes into running an operation of that magnitude, a lot of cross-border meetings, um, kind of my first introduction to all of, all of the agencies, 
uh, that that work domestically. So all the three letter agencies in the states, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's around 2010. Uh, I I was in Afghanistan in 2006 with Roto Zero. Um, I know you're in Edmonton, so I actually uh, volunteered and flew out to Edmonton and deployed with uh, PPCLI um, during Operation Enduring Freedom, which later became uh, a NATO a NATO uh, operation. So I did a lot of work there. Worked with the Afghan National Army, um, some targeting, um, a lot of different intelligence pieces, but. Uh, Came back and in 2010, I deployed as a diplomatic defense attache to the Kingdom of Bahrain. Um, I was one of three Canadians in country there. And we mainly looked at Somali piracy. I was part of Combined Maritime Forces, which was 36 countries, um, trying to keep the keep the, uh, the pirates at bay, as, you, mm. as it were. Um, at the same time, there was there was some at the time it was four eyes. So there was, there was four eyes work also that, that looked at um, what was going on in the Gulf, et cetera. And during that time, um, there was a lot of talk about transnational narco-terrorism. And it was more of a rumor than anything because no one believed that terrorists would work with criminals. Mm. So, I would, you know, myself and a British officer were approached by um, some American agencies to look into if there was a way to find out if this was actually happening. And, and we were lucky enough to have caught a Dow that had a terrorist on it with a bunch of narcotics that was heading down the coast um, of Africa, um, Macaran coast to Tanzania. Uh, so we, we managed to prove that yes, transnational narco-terrorism actually exists. Um, that operation is still currently underway as far as I know, uh, which, was, which was quite significant. And the reason that that's interesting is Later on, the British officer that I, intelligence officer that I worked with, um, comes to light again. Um, so I, I come back to, to Canada and uh, uh, I end up releasing from the military medically, had some injuries and uh, wasn't able to, to deploy. So I had to leave the military. And that's when I uh, kind of joined uh, forces with the RCMP. I left the island and moved to the mainland of British Columbia uh, and became a uh, communications officer within the RCMP's headquarters here at E-Division, um, which was, was an interesting role, but uh, one I wasn't destined to, to stay in. Uh, I was identified as an intelligence person and kind of uh, cherry-picked or recruited to, uh, to look at convergences between national security and transnational organized crime. Now, that was a, a pretty tricky thing. A lot of people don't understand the differences in information. So law enforcement information is usually at the protected level. There's very little that's in the classified domain. Although with INSET, so the National Security Enforcement Team that works with uh, for the RCMP, mm-hmm. they tend to work in the classified domain um, to a certain extent. They, they have access, but not exactly to the entire portfolio of, of uh, intelligence community um, websites, et cetera. So I was helping them with that. But while I was looking at these convergences, um, I started to find a lot of uh, crossover uh, between elements that were being investigated criminally um, at a lower level, but that also had a footprint in the national security domain, uh, which was of interest to INSET and CSIS and um, you know, our allies. So that was, that was quite interesting. It happens that at that time, uh, that friend of mine from uh, from the Middle East, the UK uh, intelligence guy, um, flies out and is doing some training here on the West Coast. And I managed to get together and, and uh, you know, get together for a drink and, and uh, had a little discussion about what was going on. Um, so I brought him into the RCMP headquarters and we started to uh, open the kimono a little bit and got to see what's going on. Uh, from there, it, it kind of went another way. Um, we have some friends in Washington, D.C. Um, that work on um, what's, what's called uh, transnational threats. And transnational threats includes money laundering and counter-narcotics. Now, they're a, a maritime component. They're the largest and oldest intelligence agency in the United States. There's about 5,000 analysts in one building. Um, so they actually took a a big interest in what was going on, mainly because of our network. And, you know, when we say something's quite important, then they, they take note. Mm-hmm. So they flew out 
and uh, came to uh, Green Timbers, the uh, RCMP headquarters here in, in BC, um, which, by the way, has about 66 to 70% of all the files the RCMP works on in the entire country. So the lower, man, lower mainland, especially, um, is where all of the activity that is um, the RCMP is focused on, hmm. um, mainly just because of where the assets are. So coming out there, uh, you know, I worked with uh, a gentleman that you've had on already, uh, Mr. Cal Krusty. Um, and, you know, he took a, a big interest in what was going on because he was working with the Americans extensively. He had brought in um, the DEA, the FBI, and I believe it was DHS uh, into, the, into the office. They gave them their own offices within there. So we were able to work with them. Um, they worked out of the embassy in Vancouver. Um, a lot of my contacts were in the United States, in D.C., and cross-border in Washington State, um, but also, you know, within the Five Eyes. So we started some discussions, and they went back. We had about, I don't know, three or four different visits, um, and they, they really looked into the classified side of things. And uh, what was found was a very, very significant amount of criminal activity, so transnational organized crime activity that was happening in the lower mainland and how it was connected to a lot of other um, hotspots uh, globally, but especially in the United States. So these became a, you know, a, a big concern and the awareness went through the roof. Uh, and I want to ask, just so at this point, when you're finding this stuff out, is this like, has this just been going untouched all this time? Yeah. Basically, nobody's done anything about any of these groups. Yes, because when you're in an investigation, and, and it's 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 no one's I don't want to say it's no one's fault because I, I I would hope that someone would be looking at this. When you have Ottawa, which is you know a political entity mm-hmm. looking from their lens uh at what's going on and they're trying to monitor and maintain these things. Um the investigations that are being conducted, you can only follow the information where it needs to go. Um, a starting point. You need a starting point. Then you need mm-hmm. a predicate. Of, then you and you have these things um, within uh, that law enforcement investigation piece that that they're just bound by because it can contaminate the file. So it makes sense. Um, one of the issues I identified was that embedding an intelligence analyst within the investigation negates them being an intelligence analyst. Because now they're an investigator, and what they're what they're collecting becomes evidence. Yeah, intelligence isn't evidence. Evidence can be used by intelligence. It's, it's just another raw source of data. So intelligence really works in probabilities. So beyond a shadow of a doubt, that's not really what intelligence does. Intelligence is there to give you the likelihood of something. Mm. It's it's to it's when you look at intelligence led policing. So that was something else that I was trying to help. Um, the RCMP here with um, the FBI had gone through a huge change and gone towards intelligence-led policing versus what's called CompStat, which is mainly statistical information. So crime analytics is different than intelligence. Okay. So this got kind of muddied um, basically because this is the way it's always been done, et cetera. Um, I'll give you a, for instance, if you're investigating a homicide, you have a starting point because there's a dead body. Now you've got a predicate offense and a starting point, and you can start to work from there. If we have a terrorist who's plotting to do something, what's the starting point? Mm. How do you go and look at someone because of privacy and everything else? So there's concerns around, you're just looking at everyone for, you can't look at them unless you have a reason to look at them. Mm-hmm. So that, and that reason needs to be a predicate offense. So my explanation of that is, it's called threat streams. And if I'm looking at what, you know, um, fits within a threat stream, whether it's prostitution or anything else, I'm looking for that activity and whatever pops up or whoever pops up, that's the reason that you're looking at it. An example of that is if you're driving your patrol car down the street and you see some people in, in an alleyway and it looks like, you know, there's violence or, you know, um, something that would draw your attention towards it. Do you just drive by because you can't say for 100% sure that there's a crime being committed? So there's no starting point. There's no predicate offense. You're guessing. Yeah. So what you do is you go and look. 
Well, that's the same thing that intelligence would do when they're collecting information based on threat streams, that they're looking at the information and will keep popping up. The funny thing is that it almost seems to be the same people, especially <laughs> when you're looking at the tactical level. And when you get into the higher levels, then you start to see the association. So this takes time um, to build out the networks and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of, you know, that was some of the issues around trying to to build this um, awareness of how intelligence works. Um, and by bringing in, I brought in, you know, the, all of the Five Eyes agencies, I brought in the AFP um, and the Aussies, or sorry, and the New Zealanders as well, um, so that we could actually start to have some talks about where this goes. Some of the things you've seen in the paper talk about Sam Gore, also known as the company. Mm -hmm. so, so these are things that the Australians have been working on for a while and that have been active. Now, some of the things that I, I noted uh, were missing in some of the law enforcement pieces, but you know, it depends on who's looking at it, why they're looking at it. Um, our job is just to make them aware. Um, yeah, so, they, so there was this, this effort to bring people together. And I started some think tanks on the base in a classified area, and we were able to discuss information sharing. And that was really a, a big part of this because in the United States in 2011, President Obama passed uh, an executive directive that allowed um, or sorry, made transnational organized crime a national security threat. Mm -hmm. That's very, very important because once it becomes a national security threat, now agencies that work in the classified domain can share it with law enforcement. Now, there's mechanisms for that, but they put the mechanism in place. Um, so we leverage that on our side. Uh, Canada is the only country of the five eyes that did not have a strategy on transnational organized crime. And to this day, I don't believe they do. Um, and so transnational organized crime is not seen as a national security threat, although I think it's gaining traction over the last little while. Uh, media has caught on, people are becoming mm. more aware, there's more pressure politically. Um, but at the time, you know, there was there was a bit of an argument about information that could be shared and how it would, um, during disclosure, it would reveal sources and all these kinds of things. But kind of explained how that we are already doing this. Um, we had brought in the lawyer from the RCMP and said, yes, on a case by case situation, but um, there's ways to do these things. Uh, unfortunately, when uh, Calvin and myself left the RCMP um, and, and a few other people, uh, these things kind of died on the vine. Mm -hmm. They kind of went back to the way they did things before, um, but there was a, there was great progress, and um, there's a lot of opportunity there. There's good people doing good work. It's just difficult when you have um, the politics involved. So whether that's at the higher level of management, um, like understanding where the RCMP, CSIS, CBSA sit, they are junior ministries mm -hmm. under the Ministry of Public Safety, so they don't have the same ability to look at classified information, for instance, as Transport Canada. Transport Canada sits above them. They're a, a higher level ministry. Is that just because of the lack of independence? Like, So you see a lot of people saying uh, uh, the RCMP is essentially just another uh, department within the government. Like, Would it be, they, they essentially need to move out and be a separate entity? Yeah, there's been a lot of discussion around um, how how to make them independent? Um, there's been talk about um, you know, dismantling the RCMP and, and starting fresh. Um, it's the same with CSIS. CSIS is a domestic intelligence agency. Mm -hmm. They are not international. They are not the CIA by any means, um, and they're and they're a lot smaller than than people realize. So, the resources that are required to do these things need to be made a priority by the government. Unfortunately. Um, while the government is able to, um, I would say, control the narrative um, on, on many of these issues, it's not that the government doesn't want people to be safe, um, but the big goal of government is to stay in power. Mm -hmm. And by staying in power, that means that you need to control your, your constituents and the voting so that you can stay in power. Um, there's nothing nefarious in that. That's been around since time immemorial. But uh, yeah, how do you, how do you, um, unbias these things and because the RCMP, RCMP became political and so did CSIS uh, I, I don't think that they can remain within 
the government structure in that sense. They need to be standalone piece that that has their own autonomy. Well, and some of those uh, things I definitely want to get to just about the bipartisan issue when it comes to this stuff. Uh, one thing I did want to uh, touch on though was you just mentioned a little uh, kind of back toward the beginning was there are limited Intel operators in Canada. Why do you think that intelligence and I guess intelligence operators, uh, why there's such a, a, a small community in Canada and on that, I mean, you see all this stuff now about uh, in the news about who briefed or who didn't brief the PM and what they knew or didn't know. It's like, uh, it's almost like uh, people are, have been ignoring intelligence all this time. And I feel like uh, from, you know, someone who doesn't, I'm not in that world per se, um, not to the extent that obviously you guys are, but I, I feel like if I was the prime minister or the justice minister, whoever, and my intelligence agency who I don't see why they would have a reason to lie to me, if they come to me and say, hey, this person is doing whatever it is, I better take that seriously. But it, it, from what I gather, they basically just been blowing it off for like decades. So, uh, why why is intelligence I don't know not taken seriously in Canada or just not a priority? So I you know there's I think there's a number of factors that play into um, the intelligence piece, and that is that people don't know what it is. Um, what I just explained to you about it not being evidence is one of the key things, mm-hmm. um, and it's to create awareness. It's to provide decision maker decision makers and stakeholders with information so that they can take action or not take action. It's their choice. They're being presented with um, an assessment. So the intelligence is actually a whole bunch of raw data that someone conducts analysis on and comes up with an assessment based on a number of factors. Mm -hmm. Experience is is definitely one of them. Um, So when, when you're providing that information to whoever those decision makers are, it's no longer the intelligence people that are right or wrong. They're going to tell you, we believe this to be highly likely, or you know, it's going to happen in the short term. We don't say it's going to happen on Tuesday, unless we know it's going to happen on Tuesday. Um, it, so that's, that's kind of the issue. Like the Iraq war, where they said the intelligence was wrong. Well, the intelligence wasn't wrong. It's impossible for the intelligence to be wrong. Mm-hmm. The intelligence gave you a, a level of probability of the weapons of mass destruction being there. Of course, they could be wrong. Yeah. They could also. Right. So um, I know some things about that stuff that I can't talk about on here, um, but I probably would have come to the same conclusion uh, based on what I know. Unfortunately, you know, when when uh, the operations conducted and they didn't find what they were looking for or did they? So what the public's being told and what's available uh, publicly is is not always the same as what mm-hmm. you know, what uh, intelligence is aware of. An example is. Uh, a law enforcement officer is on the street and uh, or an investigator, a detective, and he knows his file inside and out, but he doesn't know what's happening in the entire region or nationally or internationally. And intelligence job is to know those factors and how these things connect. So somebody he's investigating for a murder, he just goes to try to find the guy that committed the murder. Doesn't realize all of the people that he's connected to or who he works for or and that's where the intelligence piece comes in and even crime analysts don't really understand that piece it's um there are some barriers when it comes to intelligence sharing between you know whether it's um in the rcmp it's between the detachments even mm-hmm. they hold information that the headquarters doesn't have it's a difficult thing to coordinate if you don't have the right structure in place and that was one of the things that I was trying to um, help them with uh, so that there would be more awareness, um, better analysis, uh, you know, more accurate and timely. Well, I think this is one thing that we miss in policing uh, in general. And this is from working with RCMP and uh, now with EPS. Uh, I mean, new, there's, man, there are dozens of times where we've arrested somebody and once we make the arrest and their name finally goes in a database or somewhere within Edmonton, and I'll use that because it's most current examples, mm-hmm. all of a sudden we'll be getting messages and calls from 
this service over here and that one over there. It's like, oh, we actually wanted that person for a homicide. Oh, that person's an, actually an international gun smuggler or whatever they might be. It's like, well, we've been looking for this person for a month or two. It would have been nice to know those things before we just walked in with our pistols <laughs> or maybe would have had a different type of response. Certainly. But we are so bad, so bad at sharing info. Real-time info is another one. Like it, And it, it's just, uh, for whatever reason, the policing world doesn't seem to get uh, uh, this whole intelligence side of things. Yeah, that, so the, that intelligence-led policing piece is really something that's been overlooked. Um, it automatically goes back to intelligence support to operations. Uh, and a lot of people think intelligence is, can you get me the phone numbers from that guy's cell phone? That's not intelligence. Yeah. That's just data. Yeah. Um, so that's that's a bit of uh, the fault of everyone. You know, if the, lead, the head of the intelligence piece needs to say, we got to educate everybody. Um, you need to have the right systems in place. Um, but it's a profession and, and there are standards and there are references that are already, you know, being developed and maintained by agencies uh, in the five eyes, which is mainly who we, we work with. Um, and so those things need to be adopted and adhered to. Uh, it's the same as um, giving security classifications to people that don't work within a secure environment. Mm. That kind of contradicts having a security clearance. Um, when you leave a cleared area, um, like you're, you're posted somewhere else, you know, or you, you change jobs, you quit, whatever it is, um, you need to be de-indoctrinated and you, your, your security clearance is turned off. You never lose it, really. It just gets turned off um, because if you come back to a job like that, then they can go back and review it and then turn mm -hmm. it back on and you know, do the whole uh, background piece. Um, but that doesn't really occur. Um, you're, you're, they're going about it, in, the, in my opinion, in, in the wrong way. And uh, I think that there needs to be discussion and dialogue on how to remedy those things. Uh, I, I attempted it, um, you know, back in 2015. And, uh, you know, they, they're still struggling with the same kind of information sharing issues. Um, but there are ways to do this uh, more efficiently, especially in Canada. We're, we're not a very a large country. I mean, there's only, what, 60,000 people in our military. Um, and in law enforcement, I mean, how, how many people do we have across Canada in law enforcement? Mm -hmm. Everyone's a collector and that information is important, but somebody has to be able to evaluate it. Now, you've probably seen some of the stuff in the news. I know you didn't want to get into current events right away, but when you have um, what's considered oversight for the intelligence agencies um, that are appointed by government, you're having some issues with um, what's going to be acted on and what's going to be shared. I've personally come across things that have been suppressed, um, information that was uh, important and probably should have been uh, taken note of. But again, um, with limited resources, our legislation, not really that helpful when it comes to putting bad guys away. I'll give the example of money laundering. Mm -hmm. um, if anyone can tell me the last time they saw somebody uh, put in jail for money laundering over $10,000, please send me an email because <laughs> it, it's, yeah, we don't have that. Um, or even subject matter experts that can testify in court on money laundering. There aren't any mm -hmm. in BC. We had to bring someone in from Ontario. Um, and so these things you would think would be in place. And that's kind of what happened to me when I left the military. I thought, you know, domestically, I thought everything's in, in hand. You know, there's, you don't read about that much crime in Canada and, and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's kind of like in Japan where you don't read about too much crime either, but it's because it's suppressed and they're not permitted. Um, you know, so in Canada, we have the same kind of issue. We don't yeah. have a lot of enforcement. So there's a spectrum, detect, deter, disrupt, enforce, or interdict. We don't really look at all the other pieces. We tend to go right to let we need to enforce. And that's not always true because mm -hmm. we don't have the resources. So you have to find strategies around that. Well, I'd say Canada might be social work at all three first steps. <laughs> and then mm -hmm. and then maybe a little bit for enforcement, but then you'll just get in trouble anyway. So <laughs> Yeah, the enforcement part is 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 a lot more difficult 
than I think the average citizen in Canada realizes. Mm -hmm. I see a lot of frustration from people. In British Columbia, for instance, a law enforcement officer cannot charge someone. I didn't know that. You know, um, they can recommend charges to Crown. Yeah. But then you get into a lot of other issues, right? Like, do we think we can be successful? Do we want to create bad case law? Do we? So there's all these other factors that start to come into it. And it kind of misses the underlying thing of we need to put bad guys in jail. Like, <laughs> we need to stop this. We even talk to uh, like informants. Uh, it's a good one because, you know, they'll pass you info and then say you execute a search warrant on somebody. And then uh, once that finally makes it to court, charges get dropped. Well, the informant comes back and says, the hell's going on? Like I gave you rock solid info. Why is that person walking on murders or gun, gun charges? You'd think would be the two most serious things. And uh, like, well, after we dealt with them, there's about 30 other steps and opinions and everything that go into it. And I get there are like safeguards, right? And, and you can't just, you know, the police at the end of the day are the eyes and ears of the justice system and there's still many other parts to it. But yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of influence when you get to into the details of how everything's kind of handled. One thing I wanted to ask you about was um, where you're talking about the, all these crime groups, where do they mainly operate? And that's like, is, is this all dark web stuff or... Is it uh, just like fancy chat apps? Like how how would uh, how would they kind of operate? So in Canada, um, what we will see is three main groups that are the are the biggest factors, biggest threats: uh, China, Iran, and the cartels. Now, this is on transnational organized crime. Mm-hmm. Um, they all work together as well. These are not independent. Now, don't get me wrong. There's different layers to these things. Um, you have local host nation um, gangs. Um, Hell's Angels are included in those, even though they do do some international stuff. Um, and so once you move from different levels, um, you'll see the, the connections that occur. And they come right down to the tactical level, which is you know conducting you know a drug movement or something along that lines. Um, but it really is at a higher level than, than people are aware. Um, and law enforcement doesn't necessarily have the capability. Actually, we, they just don't have the capability. We've seen it. We've seen what happened in Markham where they arrested everyone, and they're all char- charges have been dropped. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw it with the two largest money laundering cases in Canadian history. You know, 180 officers for two years working on it, and then charges are stayed. And then they go after the same target, and after a few years, same thing, drop the charges. Mm-hmm. So if you're putting all these resources into that. What's going on? Because there's no one to work other stuff during that. We only have that many people, right? So yeah. they're completely focused on getting this done. And then it doesn't even work. So how do you how do you address this? And if you look at root cause, you mentioned social work and that kind of thing. And I do think that there is... Um, call it, there's a place for social work? There is, certainly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Especially in, if you're looking at the organized crime piece with retail, and they looked, they did a study here in, in Vancouver, and they found that the money that was being moved through, you know, illicitly through re- retail stuff, so fraudulent um, commodities, et cetera, exceeded drug sales. Hmm. So that's another thing. Canada is not a big country. Um, when it comes to narcotics, it's not exactly the big target. You know, you, you want to go to somewhere where you have a larger population that you can do this. Now, don't get me wrong. I have a drug problem, obviously. Um, in Vancouver, they just they just permitted people to actually carry um, personal amounts of fentanyl mm-hmm. in, if you're 18 years old and above. I mean, to me, that's insane. Um, but, you know, that's not my choice. The um, Canada is mainly used as a transshipment point. Um, sometimes they'll make sales so that they can pay for um security or um so if we go away from the money laundering piece from uh trade-based money laundering and go to service-based money laundering those two things offset um the cash piece and at a higher level you know not just your guy on the street um you may be getting narcotics brought in you know it, it was a shipment the guy was bringing in furniture and he threw in some bags of heroin okay but 
really what he wanted was marble slabs to go to, you know, another country. Mm-hmm. So that was just part of the payment. Um, so there's lots of these deals that are made um, that if you ever listen to any of those calls, you would understand that they're just, they sound like business people. They don't sound like your, your street hood guy they're talking about, you know, units of this. And, you know, I've got X units of that. And they do talk in code a bit, but really it just sounds like as if you were in procurement at a company. Mm-hmm. It's, it's pretty high level. Um, people may not realize that we have the, the largest diaspora of um, Iranians in the world post-Shah in Vancouver. Um, so we have the IRGC, we have Quds Force, we have Hezbollah, we have uh, Lebanese organized crime. We have all of those things here. Um, and that's not just in Vancouver, but that just happens to be the center of gravity. Um, one of my intelligence guys out of uh, DC once called, called Vancouver a cross between Miami and Dubai. Mm-hmm. Because you see gangs don't just stake out an area like you see in the United States quite often they say, this is my block or, you know, whatever. Um, no, gangs work freely. They work together sometimes um, and they can operate anywhere in the city. So it's a lot like Dubai in that sense. Um, bad guys, we have terrorists here. We have everything that happens here. But the Chinese piece is really the big focus. It's what you're reading about in the paper. Mm-hmm. Uh, put a lot of effort into creating awareness around this. So um that that control right there is state sponsored, and the yeah. Iranians have state sponsored activity as well. We mix in the cartels; they have a, a lot of assets and money. Uh, I mean, El Chapo had his headquarters based in Canada. Um, we have known cartel guys, um, big cartel guys, families going to school here. Uh, there's a lot going on that people just aren't aware of, and a lot of that is because law enforcement is not allowed to really share that information, and that's. That's, there's, I agree with that. Um, but there needs to be an awareness by the public of, of the level of crime um, and illicit activity that's happening in Canada. Um, Alberta, I know you're based out of Alberta. Mm-hmm. Alberta has some significant issues um, that you know, people may or may not be aware of and, and their connectivity to some of these state-sponsored activities um, and actors. So, you know, that, that awareness is something I'm working on every day. Um, and I see that a lot more people are, are interested in it. So, you know, positivity there. Is that, um, so your current position, you're with close hold intelligence. Is that what you're still working on as working on these transnational organized crime? And, and then on that, who do you, um, like, who do you work for? What does the company do? Um, so I formed the, the company, um, it's, it's not that old. I just, I put it together in January. Um, it's, and it's really where I saw an, a niche was helping both security um, and corporate companies um, that are having issues understanding what the threats are for their clients. Mm-hmm. Um, law offices. Um, yeah, it, it, you know, there's an opportunity, I think, to help government. So I'm, I'm quite new uh, in, in, the, uh, in the corporate world um, as an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot, of, a lot of people that are interested in, in discussing these things and, and gaining insight. So whether it's, you know, uh, C-suite uh, within a corporation uh, or, or lawyers that have clients that have unique issues that have come up. Um, we see, you know, the cyber, cyber pieces. We have uh, some ransom stuff that's going on. Um, and there's a lot of that out there and some of these corporations are keeping it quiet. People don't even realize it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, it's also the international piece. So if they're invested in, um, somewhere in Africa and, and suddenly there's a change in, uh, a regime or there's new threats that are emerging, they might want to know about that. And they don't always trust everyone that's, that's advising them to begin with. Um, NGOs tend to look out for themselves because they, they need money to keep operating. Um, they have good intentions, but it, it's really getting a proper understanding, sort of seeing through all the noise. And that's where, where I can come in and, and kind of help, especially on the Chinese front. Um, now everyone's concerned if they're doing business with the Chinese, whether or not they're being leveraged or, or whatnot. <laughs> um, and, and people just don't understand that there are no rich people in China mm. in the sense that we think of it in the West. 
Um, you're allowed to be rich until you're not. Um, mm. Just ask Jack Ma how that works. Uh, or a number of other figures, especially with regime change, the, you'll just be replaced um, and, your, and your assets will be nationalized. And the Russians did this with, with their oil um, not that many years ago. Uh, well, that's one of the things so I was going to get into was um, like you've got the book coming up, Mosaic Effect, and you've obviously worked a lot in uh, on the CCP China issue. So one thing maybe to start is, uh, maybe it's be better at the end, but I'll ask it now. What can the general public, like where can they, what or what should they pay attention to? Where can they get their information so that they're kind of uh, as aware as possible of what's actually going on. Well, that's a uh, that's a tricky one. Um, I would say that the average Canadian uh, puts a lot of stock in what they read from you know, CTV mm. and uh, Global News, and uh, I think CBC is is coming around. Um, although it's a, a state run media, people are becoming a lot more aware of information that's out there and available. Now, influencers tend to be the ones that, that people follow. They'll listen to podcasts. Um, they'll be on Twitter. So this information is out there, but who do you trust? Because disinformation, yeah. misinformation, and malinformation are key components of threat actors like China and Russia. So they're, they're there manipulating these things as much as they possibly can. Um, we see this with protests, and I won't get into which protests, but you will see that anything that is going to gain media attention will have um, elements that will infiltrate and hijack these things. Um, so somebody could start off with a, a well-intentioned protest. Unfortunately, there are elements that are going to take advantage of that. And they also see it as, and I've been told this directly from a former right-wing extremist turned, uh, vig not vigilante, um, you know, he, he's just taken a stance against it um, and works for some universities now, that they see those as recruiting opportunities. Mm -hmm. Because here are people that are incited, either they have anti-government sentiment or whatever it is, and they see those as opportunities. And they've actually switched from, um, you know, a youthful radicalization to more uh, middle-aged professionals because of the fact that they have um, more respect and people will trust them. So when they come on board, you have doctors and lawyers. We saw this in like 9-11, where you could take all of these experts that say, this is what happened. And you could equally take all of these experts with the same credentials and say the opposite. Yeah. So it really, then it's this, this question of who do you want to believe? Because you have your own biases and your own biases are what are going to lean you towards it. You can't say one is more, you know, academically uh, acclaimed than the other because they're not. Um, but we see that the same within the radicalization, right-wing extremist pieces. Um, so where you said, where do you go to get your information? Um, I think that's right now a very difficult thing. Um, even some of the, the media, a lot of the media is being influenced by China mm -hmm. and Russia to a certain extent. But by the Chinese, um, whether they're they're becoming partners in those organizations, and now they're now they're a stakeholder, and they have a say in what can go out and what can't go out. Um, and lawfare is a huge piece. So anybody that speaks out about these things immediately gets it's racist. Yeah, the legal aspect, the whole anti-Asian thing. You're creating a uh, hate crimes sure. against Asians. Sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and I mean, that, we're talking about the Asian piece, but honestly, it, it could be others as well. Mm -hmm. But the Chinese especially, um, and they don't, they don't just um, have terrible lawyers. You know, they're hiring Dentons or they own these agencies. Mm -hmm. um, so part of the whole education piece of going abroad and uh, with their new national security laws, it's not totally new, but they've, they've ramped them up, um, is that you have to do what they say. So the information that comes back to China, they understand how our legal system works better than we do. Um, and they have unlimited funds. So when it comes to the lawfare piece, it's very difficult to prosecute anything um, because of our laws. And this is why Canada is such a soft landing place. Mm. You can come here and get away with so much if you have the money and the means. 
Um, you're seeing it right, right now with your political interference piece that I know you want to talk about later, but... Oh, go ahead. Um, you're, you're seeing this play out live. Han Dong um, becomes an independent and votes against the party that he was with and then immediately goes to sue global. Well, how is he affording that? Who's paying for that? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of questions around these things. Um, you know, there's a, a lot of finger pointing, you know, Global News and uh, the Globe and Mail. So it was first released from the Globe and Mail, and then the Globe and Mail gets upset that Global released it. And yet the leak was actually to Globe and Mail. Whether or not it came out in newsprint is, you know, irrelevant. There was a leak to media, and Globe and Mail was the one that received it. So, you know, pointing the finger at, at another news agency doesn't help the matter. This could have been remedied if the prime minister had simply come in and said, declassify the recordings. Mm-hmm. Then the public could decide, couldn't they? Yeah. But that won't happen. And there's reasons why these things won't happen. Um, you can read about some of them in the book. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, understanding how the United Front works and the leveraging that they have, um, they don't have to physically come in and change the vote. Um, you know what I mean? When you're changing sentiment or influencing voters, um, those things are significant. When you're providing money, which is what law enforcement wants, um, everybody wants this evidence, evidence, evidence. And I told you what happens with evidence. Look what happens with terrorists. If you don't have the evidence to get them beforehand mm-hmm. in Canada, you'll never get them. And that's what we see, because when was the last time somebody got caught for a terrorist act and actually went to prison? Well, and one of the things I was thinking of is, um, like, for Alberta, we have our provincial election coming up, Mm -hmm. and some of the influence that you see from the prior, like the federal election side. But I imagine um, even some of these actors, they're definitely going to be interested in provincial elections, municipal elections you know, right through, it It all has an impact on them. Um, what, do you think the rhetoric around it is too soft or is it is it kind of just right when they say there's influence in the elections? Like, I don't know if we want to go full US and just say the whole thing was rigged. <laughs> and, uh, they seem to play in like the, the you know, the wider goalposts of crazy sometimes. But um, I don't know if we want to say elections prior elections have been rigged, but definitely there's influence in there. Is that safe to say? Yeah. So I, when I first looked at this and was, as I've been asked to comment, I was actually asked to testify at the commission and, um, you know, I, I'm staying away from that right now. There's enough people in, in there. Uh, it's very political. Mm-hmm. So the, the political interference is called sharp power. And this is hybrid warfare and it's being conducted by the Chinese and other countries, but mainly the Chinese. Um, We have soft power, which is the economic piece, right? You're looking at corporate takeovers, critical infrastructure that's been purchased. I know you're aware of this. You can look at some of the the oil and gas pieces in Alberta that Mm -hmm. have direct connections to China. We can look at softwood lumber and a a number of other critical infrastructure pieces, transportation, um, telecommunications. We had the Huawei issues, et cetera. Mm -hmm. There's many, many more uh, that are ongoing. so yeah, the influence piece by the United Front Work Department is from the grassroots right through to federal. Anything and everything they can get involved in, from uh, strata councils to mayors to um, MLAs, you name it. Um, anywhere there's an opportunity because it's being saturated. This is not one-offs. This is not a targeted approach to something. This has been going on for 30-something years, if you look at the Sidewinder report that uh, Michel Junokatsuya yep. has spoken about. Um, he's actually mentioned uh, you know, one of the mainstays in our book, which is Operation Dragon Lord. I know um, Scott Newark came on, and he, he had briefly mentioned it. Yep. Um, we, we brought it out in a CBC news article out of D.C. Um, so, yeah. These things have been going on for a long, long time. This is well-established. And that's why it's it's the center of gravity is because it's so well-established. I don't want to give away everything in the book, but um, the people that come here from mainland China come from you know various areas of China. And they basically put together a friendship society that is 
stated to help the people back home. So, you know, they get together and they raise money and they do these things. But unfortunately, that's actually controlled. Well, initially it was controlled by the People's Liberation Army until the CCP took it. Um, and so there's ulterior motives. And this is written right into their doctrine. This is not, you know, Scott's Book of Wonders. Um, this, these things are actually documented. You know, the uh, world domination by 2049 by the Chinese is a stated goal. Mm-hmm. This isn't, um, you know, intelligence analysts making things up. This is somebody taking actual reference material and saying, okay, now how are they doing it? And they've talked about this openly, um, you know, the magic weapon of the United Front Work Department. Canada is quite valuable. We have all the natural resources. We have all the water. There, there are things here. We're, we're on the board of the United States, one of the key adversaries. So thinking that Canada... Um, and China relations are something that we we can benefit from or that we should use is, is something that was exploited. And I think it was mainly for economic gain. We saw it on Dragon's Den where they'd say, hey, you've got a great idea, but your costs are too high. We should offshore this to China mm. and then bring it back and sell it, right? Um, and so it was made to be kind of okay. Uh, unfortunately, that has been the plan the whole time. Um, and now you're fully embedded. So you go from the from the the licit world where you're on the up and up, you know, conducting business mm-hmm. to the gray world where suddenly now you're being leveraged, mm-hmm. and there's there's things that are being added to shipments. Or and there's a number of different ways we can get into the fentanyl piece and and how that that works within Canada and the United States um, to undermine society. Uh, these aren't just they're just not just happening. Yeah. There's actual design and intent behind it. Canada is at war with China. And whether or not we recognize it, they definitely recognize it. It's part of their doctrine. It's why cyber attacks us. I mean, in BC, corporate entities, uh, government entities, sorry, um, are attacked 3,000 times a minute. 3,000 times a minute by Chinese organizations, mainly ones that work for their government um that's not you know that's not something we're doing to other countries it's not something that uh you would expect from a trade partner um so there's intent behind these things and that's kind of what we need people to wake up to and i think they're starting to sentiment is changing yeah i mean it's definitely i think for the general public seeing is believing so if they're not seeing boots on the ground and tanks rolling in somewhere that like that's war to them so if they don't see that, they don't really get it. Um, talking about your book uh, and kind of the title of it, where you say it's in America's backyard, uh, this kind of got me thinking of some of the stuff you're mentioning here. It's just, is it, maybe I'll ask, where did the title come from? And uh, not to change the title, <laughs> but if it started America's backyard, uh, like Canada seems to be kind of the gate into the backyard. So is Canada really where this is starting? Is are we the like um, you said the easy land, the, the soft landing spot for a lot of this transnational crime um, for CCP stuff? Like are we um, are we the weak link that's just allowing a lot of things to happen and and helping out uh, whether we know it or not? Well, I think you can ask yourself the question. You know, the RCMP arrested their head of intelligence, hmm. um, and we've had other damage. Uh, internationally with our allies, that doesn't look good. And it, and the result is, you know, we're excluded from AUKUS. Mm-hmm. So from the agreement that is, is made to look at the Indo-Pacific, that's very significant. You know, New Zealand was dropped from the five eyes for a number of years because of their inability to maintain um, of the security that's required. Canada's in that boat. Um, you know, we're, we've been told we can't make our NATO commitment. Um, yeah. There's so many so many pieces that that indicate that Canada is not what's considered reliable. And Canada does not have the ability to protect itself. It needs its allies. So who who's going to swoop in um, mm-hmm. and help us? Um, yeah. So the, so when you talk about the back door, the uh, the report that I'm talking about, this um, Operation Dragonlord, is a Department of U- U.S. Department of Justice um, report. Um, involves all of the three-letter agencies uh, in the United States, they looked at Canada as a threat to the United States. 
mm-hmm. because of its infiltration by the Chinese. Now, I, I mentioned um, former CSIS um, head of, uh, what is it, uh, the Asian section for CSIS back in 1997 um, and the author of uh, the Sidewinder Report. He, when he was you know, giving his testimony, he stated that he was aware of Operation Dragon Lord because he shared information with the United States. So they were quite afraid of what was happening in Canada, and they still are. Mm-hmm. They're still aware of the saturation that's, that's here, and you know, Canada's being identified as a threat. There's subtle indicators, whether or not it's being stated in public uh, or not, but there's indicators that, yeah, you know, the decoupling that the United States is trying to do from China, Canada's undermining it to a certain extent. Canada has not taken a strong stance against China. We are saturated and we are afraid of public opinion because we don't want to be called racist. Mm-hmm. And so we're not getting things done, unlike Australia, who has taken a hard stance against these things. Um, there's lots of information out there. Um, the book lays out a template of how they do this, not just in Canada, but in every single country. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's not going away. And mark my words, this podcast, um, you're going to see a lot more of it. And it, uh, it, it may or may not end well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know what? And oh, man, at the end of the day, it's just a lot of the stuff that's decided uh, in the politics of it all. It's just Canada doesn't seem like, or it, it seems like Canada needs to grow up and act like an adult. <laughs> like simple things like you're, you're scared to do something because you're going to get called racist. Like grow up, you know, it's national security issues. You have to deal with some of these uh, people flinging mud at you and, and different things. Like I just, yeah, I find it's, um, it's almost insane that it, it's grown to the level that you see uh, all the things getting put out there now. Sam Cooper's doing some good work. Um, Juno Katsuya, he's doing some good work. Uh, yeah, I, it's, it's pretty scary. And it also seems kind of daunting. Like how do you turn it around um, we're kind of coming up to the end of our time here. I do want to ask you how, what are some of the solutions that maybe you see? Like, how do we turn this around? How do we get back in favor with five eyes? How do we not be seen as a threat to our uh, neighbors to the South? Like, what, where's a starting point for all this? Um, this is the difficult part is that government is the one that's going to direct policy. And Paying lip service to our allies is one thing. Um, you can get away with that for a little while. But really, it's the people in Canada that need to become aware, and I mean really aware, mm-hmm. about who they're putting in power. This is not just the Liberal Party that has been infiltrated. These people have infiltrated all parties. And so the mechanism for identifying these things and where the trust needs to lie um, needs to have oversight. So we need to have independent oversight. We need to have um, an intelligence agency that can look at all these things and share them with not just one person or an oversight committee, but with uh, you know all of government. We need to have better information sharing between agencies because that doesn't exist. It happened in 2010 during the games and then mm-hmm. those MOUs were nullified. Um, and without those things, I fear... Um, we'll we'll just continue on the way we're going. This is old news and it'll pass on and we'll get a new government and the new government will say they'll do a bunch of things and nothing has been changed. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what we're seeing, whether it comes from the Cullen Commission or anything else. We have these minor changes. Um, we have lip service. You know, the government's giving law enforcement $56 million to look into political interference. And yet the government said there is no political interference. And, that, so, <laughs> yeah. who, and then it's going to go where? To the people that already appointed to advise and say, yeah, we, we heard that stuff, but you know, there's no evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, and that's an issue. Um, so until we have the, uh, the strength to say, okay, this is wrong and stand up and it's the same with the ethics committee and everyone else. And that there's actual, um, enforcement of these things. I mean, the head of RCMP intelligence, Cameron Ortis, is out on bail. Yeah, you know uh, this is this makes no sense to me. Um, I, we didn't talk about that, but there's a whole story behind that. So, if anybody wants to reach out, um, maybe we can do a follow up. Yeah, for sure. 
Um, how can people best follow you and your work? Um, so on Twitter, uh, my handle is at five eyes underscore Scott. Uh, I have a media site mm-hmm. uh, for interviews, etc., which gives you know, some of my other interviews with Sky News, etc. Some of the articles I've written, um, and that is hybridwar.ca. And then, if you want to reach me uh, professionally, it's closehold.ca. And that's my intelligence consulting firm. Great. Well, uh, I want to say thanks for coming on. Uh, hang on the line for two seconds. I'll say bye offline. Sure. But uh, yeah, I really appreciate you coming on and we'll definitely have a follow-up. That's easy to set up. <laughs> awesome. Fantastic. Thanks, Nathan. Appreciate it.